And I wasn't thinking for a response. <laughs> Thank you, though. All right, I'll be reading the scripture for today and then praying for us. Scripture is out of Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, you, you are perfect beyond compare. You are holy and the one worthy of praise. You are the author of all life and merciful beyond our comprehension. You do things that just make us awe. You, you have literally created the amazing heavens and its ridiculous bigness so that we can be amazed by it and give you glory for it. Because you are truly worthy to be praised. Thank you, Father, for your provision and your care for us. You love us more than we can imagine, so help us to love as you love. Help us to care for those that are hurting and to lift up those that need encouragement. And help us to find joy in every circumstance you bring our way, especially when it gets hard. Help us to remain obedient because it is so difficult to be obedient when life isn't going our way. Father, it's, it's plain as day to us that you are the author of all life and control every facet of creation. It is so clear to us that only an, an, an omnipotent and infinite being could have brought about what we experience as reality. And it's saddening, though, that there are so many people that still think all of this around us just came by accident, from nothing. It just blows my mind. And when I hear people credit the universe for whatever life experience they're going through, it just makes me first want to laugh, but then I get sad because they obviously don't know what we know. You aren't real to them yet. Father, we pray that you would become ultra-real to everyone here and beyond, uh, become, and become our focus so that your will be our main concern rather than what is most convenient and comfortable in the moment. Only you can help us to successfully and lastingly turn us from our selfish pride and sin. So we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would help us to repent and turn away from that sin that is bringing us down. And for those that don't know you, Father, I pray that your son Jesus would be made ultra, really real to them as he is to us. We want you to be high and lifted up, and we need you to do a mighty work in ourselves in this church and in this area because we need you and we want you and we love you help us to always look to Jesus for everything amen good morning again I want to start out before I start my sermon by putting a stipulation on the message this message isn't <clears throat> 
one that I necessarily wrote. This is a message that Pastor Duncan has given me. I really wanted to do a message today, but I didn't have, June was a very busy time. We had COVID, we had an out-of-town wedding, we had a, two, a, week, a week and a half vacation that we took, and so I couldn't get a hold of Piper or Gruden, so I asked uh, Pastor Duncan if he would let me steal one of his messages. And so um, I just wanted to say that to start out with, that if you hear any, anything that sounds like Pastor Duncan, well, it is Pastor Duncan. He's just better looking than me. Okay. The verses we're looking at this morning that uh, Brian read from Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, represent a slice of life within this young New Testament church in Acts, where the people had repented and believed the gospel. Luke is describing what it would have been like to live as a new follower of Christ right after Peter's first sermon. In the rest of the book, it's almost all about what the apostles were doing, preaching, healing, praying, and leading. But here the emphasis is not on the apostles, but on the folks, the average people that led people to church. Luke records that this in the, in the quality of spiritual life, when a group of people have repented, believed in the gospel. Listen to what it was like as I read again what Brian read, verses 42 through 47 in Acts chapter 2. Luke is talking here about the, the normal people of church in those days. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This passage helps us uh, see what the church looks like when, the, when people have been stricken to their hearts with a sense of their sin. Come to Christ for forgiveness and repented or turned from their sin to Jesus and the control of the Holy Spirit. To illustrate what this means, here are a few statements or attitudes that we might have in the church that weren't present here in Acts chapter 2. You know, honey, we have small group tonight. Has it been two weeks already? Oh, can we just fake COVID and skip this one? Or another one is, we have to serve in the nursery again? Can't they find someone else to watch those kids? Or, we need to get home today. The Packers and Bears play at noon, and I'd really like to see the pregame. And sometimes Pastor Duncan goes on long. <laughs> or that prayer meeting some, seemed like it went on forever last Wednesday. Let's not do that again. Now, those are statements often made by people who are religious. They may go to church, but church for them is mostly about screwing on their smile, talking about spiritual things, listening to a message, being pleasant to some people, and then leaving it all again until next week when they do it again. It's like getting your religious ticket punched once a week. There's no reality. It's all external. What they see Christianity to be is a series of obligations and duties. And there's no real change of life. And what happens on Sunday is vacuum sealed off from the rest of the week. What happens there is mostly irrelevant to everything else that happens at home, school, with family, or work. Luke wants us to see how different Christianity, real Christianity, is from religion. There is reality. These folks have been radically changed from the inside out. 
People who they didn't even know two months earlier are now people who they can't wait to spend a lot of time with. Teaching from the Bible that a few weeks earlier would have bored them to tears, now they can't get enough of. They could and did listen to it for hours. Their sin, which until very recently they didn't even notice, now breaks their heart. And that's because this man Jesus, who maybe they'd never even heard of, has now become the most important person in their life. Folks, this is not religion. It's the power of the gospel. It's what God does in the, in the life of a group of people who love Jesus the way the gospel can cause them to love him. Let's take a look at some of the marks of a church where religion is absent and the power of the gospel has been unleashed to change lives. Maybe the most important word in this passage is the main verb in verse 42, and they devoted themselves. This verse is a summary statement of the section. And they were devoting themselves to four areas of ministry. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Everything else Luke tells us about this church is just an elaboration on those four areas of ministry. The overarching attitude of this church is they devoted themselves. This was, not, this was a devoted church. The word devoted means they were impassioned to these areas of ministry on a consistent, steadfast basis. The word brings out the tenacious character of the church. They were not devoted for a moment or for a particular worship service or a prayer meeting or for a season. They were strongly committed to these four areas of ministry over the long haul. The reason is because they weren't motivated by the external, I have to, but by the internal, I want to. This church didn't run hot and cold. Think about the difference that is from the negative examples that I said earlier. This church is remarkable because there was such a balance in all aspects of their life together. You'll see what I mean by balance as we go on. But I want, to, I want us to briefly look at six areas of this balance within the church that Luke brings out in this verse. The first area of balance is this church had a strong emphasis on both biblical teaching and the loving of one another. So often in churches, you see either one strong emphasis on biblical teaching or doctrine, or warm, loving community. We tend to move toward one of those two poles on this continuum. Often churches that emphasize strong biblical teaching tend to be a bit cold and academic, made up of people who are more interested in Bible knowledge than in loving God's people and the unchurched. On the other hand, churches that place a strong emphasis on the community and impersonal ministries interpersonal ministries can often be great at having fun together and deeply enjoying each other's company even serving one another in love, but they often have no strong hunger for biblical teaching. And without solid teaching, the Bible tells us that we can't grow in faith. Paul says, faith comes from hearing the word of God. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. They were strongly committed to both strong apostolic teaching of the truth of the Bible and to a loving fellowship. The love they had for one another was driven by the truth of God's word. The apostles' teaching would have included a lot of what we read in the New Testament. There would be a strong emphasis on teaching people to know answers to questions like, who is Jesus Christ? And what did he accomplish by his life, death, and resurrection? What is the gospel? What is the role of the Old Testament law? What is the church and what is required to be part of the church? What roles do baptism and communion play? 
What is grace? What is holiness? Those are all questions about doctrine, the teaching of the Bible. But there also would have been a strong ethical teaching on how the gospel is lived out in daily life in the middle of the surrounding culture. They hungered for the truth. They worked at hearing it often, and they worked at understanding it and applying it to their lives. At the same time, they were deeply committed to the fellowship. The word translated fellowship actually means to share. And these folks share just about everything. We see what Luke means in this in verse 46 and 44 and verse 46. All who believed, all who believed were together and had all things in common. These people were strongly committed to being with one another, and they were together every day. The notion that being with the gathered church only on a Sunday and maybe being in a community group that meets every couple weeks would have been a burden to these people. That would have seemed bizarre to them. For them, if being the church was an unwelcome burden to someone, that would have sounded profane. They were in Christ together, and that bond, that bond of unity in the Spirit was precious to them. When Luke says they had all things in common, he's not saying they were all from the same socioeconomic class or educational level or the same cultural background. Quite the contrary. As if we would read a few verses earlier in chapter 2, that they were, more, they were people from more than 10 district cultures represented in this group. There were Jews from Palestine, and there were Jews from all around the Mediterranean, all who were much more Greek in their cultural background. So what does Luke mean when he says they had all things in common? What he means is this. If Jesus is absolutely everything to you, and he's absolutely everything to someone else, then on a practical level, you have all things in common. If God and Jesus and faith are the dominant passions of your life, and the same is true with me, then the fact that we have very different cultural differences or age differences or ethnical backgrounds is unimportant. The gospel causes people to be so absolutely passionately in love with Jesus that people who share that love have all things in common. They have something much bigger than that what united them. It takes something bigger than us to unite very different kinds of people. Think about World War II. It was so massive of an endeavor, and, it, and the stakes were so high, it united all kinds of different kinds of people. Blacks and whites fought on the same side in a culture that was still very heavily segregated. Stalin had very little in common with Churchill or Roosevelt, but the war against Germany was big enough to bring them together. Men and women worked in factories together. In those days, that was only because there was a war to be won. After Jesus, everything else in life is just details to these people. Verse 46 unpacks this further. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. These people were together every day in the temple courts, and they prayed together, they worshipped, and they were instructed in the temple. And then they went to each other's homes. They couldn't get enough of each other. They learned and prayed and celebrated communion together daily. The reason is they shared the same passionate love for Christ, who is the biggest thing in the universe, and that unites them at the deepest level of their hearts. If Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady had been first century gladiators visiting Jerusalem, this church would have never considered not being with one another to go see this spectacle. Another area of balance is this church served and worshiped God with both joy and reverent fear. The Bible repeatedly teaches that worship is marked by reverence and joy. There is no separation between fearing God in reverence and rejoicing in Him. 
He is holy and he is good and our worship, when it's under the influence of the Spirit, will reflect an understanding of both of those attributes. We will see their reverence in verse 43 where Luke writes, and awe came upon every soul. The word used for awe is often translated to fear. It's what people experience when there's a strong sense of presence of God in his holiness. And in this church, all the people felt this awe persistently. This is the sense of God's glory that is today so lacking in the church. The sense that God is here and he is different than us. He is holy. Tim Keller describes the glory of God this way. The word glory literally means weighty. And Tim Keller describes that glory or weightiness this way compared to anything else. God is weighty. God matters more than anything else. For instance, if you drop an object into water that is heavier than the water, there's a splash. There's a water quake. If you drop an object on a sheet of ice heavier or weightier than the ice, the ice breaks. It's an ice quake. The object has more glory than the ice, so it quakes. When God comes into your life, he has more glory. He is weightier. He matters more than anything else. He moves all the furniture around. How you view yourself, others' history, it all changes because you have this God quake that happened in your life. That kind of God who is that weighty brings a sense of reverence or healthy fear into our lives. The sense of awe was pervasive in this church, but it wasn't oppressive or paralyzing because there was, a, because there was and has seen great joy here as well. The sense of God's holiness didn't throw a wet blanket on the joyful worship of these saints. Instead, it deepened it. There was a reverent joy. There was a layering, a spiritual depth to their emotion here. This was not a momentary chill that runs up your spine. It was a persistent sense filling the church. Another area of balance within this church is the church was both prayerful and actively sacrificially giving. One of the four main pillars of ministry in this church was their prayer. They devoted themselves to the prayers. According to verse 42, this means prepared prayers like those found in the Psalms. You can pray powerfully using these prayers. But it also refers to the prayer-soaked environment that marked the church. We see many examples of the priority this church placed on prayer in many places in the books of Acts. Here are just a few. Saul was praying when God instructed Ananias to go, with it, go to him and lay his hands on him so that he would receive the Spirit in Acts 9, verses 10 through 18. Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, was commended as a man of regular prayer. God granted Peter the vision of animals in a sheet lowered to earth while he was praying in Acts 10, verse 9. Peter's liberation from prison was done in response to the fervent prayers of the church in Acts 12, verse 5 and verse 12. The commissioning of uh, Barnabas and Paul were the first intentional mission to the Gentiles occurred in a context of worship, fasting, and prayers in Acts 13, verses 2 and 3. There are many of these instances where prayer is essential to the ministry of church. The church didn't do anything of significance, and God doesn't appear to do much of significance apart from prayer. 120 of these people had prayed before the Spirit came for 10 straight days. This is not the kind of church that, where people complained about prayer meetings running longer than expected, yet it wasn't like the church was filled with navel-gazing mystics who do nothing but sit around and enjoy their individual intimate times with, of communion with the Father. That would have seemed weird to these people. 
There wasn't a monastery where people isolated themselves from the needs of the real world. They combined their prayers with sacrificial acts of mercy. Verse 45 says, They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Palestinian Jews of this time who made up all of the church at this point by law regularly gave 20% of their income away to the religion and many more gave an additional 10%. It was a part of what they owed for temple worship and gave as, poor, as gifts to the poor. So that level of sacrifice was not unheard of by these Jews. What's different here is that these radical acts of sacrifice were done without external religious pressure. <clears throat> this was not an external law or rule. It was a law of love written on their hearts. It's clear that what motivated these folks was not a desire for God to prosper them financially. These people were motivated to give their money away, distributing the proceeds to all who had a need. They weren't generous just to be generous, as if money meant nothing to them. There wasn't an ind indifference to money. It was their need-meeting love for their brothers and sisters that moved them to generosity their love for Christ united them in a way that meant the meeting of needs of a brother or sister was vastly superior to the invest their assets and piling up their treasures on earth. This was both a praying church and a church actively, sacrificially giving to others. Another area of balance in ministry is this church was both distinct from the world, but it was also attractive to the world. If an unchurched investigative journalist from the Jerusalem Herald Examiner would have lived within this community and genuinely tried to live like them, he would have felt very frustrated very early on. This church lives so differently than the rest of the Jews. There were huge lines of division between the church and the world, darkness and light, life and death. But at the same time, we read in verse 47 that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. The point is not that the world loved the church at, this, at all points. Many of the Jews eventually grew to hate the church. The point is the church lived lives that were attractive to the outside world. There is something very attractive about this kind of close-knit, sacrificially committed community to the average person in the world who craves this kind of acceptance. Notice something that many churches forget today, and that is, a healthy church is attractive to the world in many ways because it is distinct from it. The relationship is between their distinctiveness and the world's admiration, not in any attempt for the church to be like the world in order to relate to the world. A final area of balance in the church is this church was committed to both discipleship and sharing the gospel to the unchurched. This church was clearly a teaching church, but we read in verse 47, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That implies that these believers were telling others about Jesus and bringing them into church. There were both a desire to grow the church deeper in discipleship and also a burden to grow it even wider through evangelism. In fact, it's wrong for churches to separate those two areas of ministry because they're two sides of the same coin. The New Testament knows nothing of the so-called teaching churches that don't care much about the outreach into community. They want sound doctrine, but their doctrine does little to increase the concern for people around them who are needy and suffering and ultimately dying and going to hell. That's not this church. Neither is this church in Acts like any other churches today, where there's a strong emphasis on reaching the unchurched, but they're often 
guilty of being very shallow in their teachings. These folks may work hard at getting unchurched people to respond to come to church with them, but these churches easily produce people who only think they are Christians because they have been transformed by the gospel because the church is so anxious for new believers. They don't preach a gospel that calls people to come and surrender their lives to Christ. These churches can also produce believers whose ignorance of the Bible teaching makes them spiritually shallow and vulnerable to deception. So what does all this mean? I have never been to a church like this one in Acts, and I'll bet that you haven't either, at least in North America. That is why many reasons, but one is, we are way too content with the way things are. Why would we seek after God to bring change to the church if what we're doing now doesn't bother us? We don't even expect church life to be like this, but Luke puts this here in part to show us that this is the model. This is what Christ looks like when he shows himself in the church. So how do we get there? Or at least, how do we get closer? Well, 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. When we see how far we are from the examples of Acts 2, the first step is to admit that there is sin. Our problem isn't that we're too busy. Our problem is idolatry. By this I mean that we're often too busy to looking to other things of the world, to entertainment, to gadgets, our cell phones, our tablets, other forms of pleasure, alcohol, drugs, that these people never had access to, to make us happy. Let's ask the question, are we happier than these people? No not even close. We're, we're too often allowed the things of this world to fill the God-sized hole in us that only he can satisfy. How often do we feel the Spirit's conviction over being too comfortable with the status quo and ignoring his prompting? When we find ourselves in that place, the answer is to humble ourselves before God. Admit that we aren't living this way. Our church life doesn't resemble this, and we pray earnestly and by God's grace to change. The good news is that Jesus died not only to forgive our sin, but also so that we can become increasingly living like this more, individually and as a church. If you haven't trusted Christ in the gospel and, and accepted him as your sin penalty, look at this church. This is absolutely beautiful. This is what Christ died to purchase with his death on the cross. If you want to know more about this joy, and more importantly, if you want your sins forgiven, you need to come to Christ today. Place your trust in his death and to be the punishment for your sins. Tim Keller says, I was so bad, Jesus had to die for me, and so loved that Jesus was glad to die for me. Accept Jesus Christ today and begin to see this life produced in you. Again, if you're, not, if you're in Christ, don't settle for being religious. Love Jesus, which means this sin will bring brokenness to your heart. Why aren't we more like this? And don't ever forget the good news for you. That is, because of what Jesus accomplished, we can now write a claim as ours, our inheritance. Claim the promise of the gospel, a hunger for God's word, a love for God's people, a passion for prayer, and a willingness to let go of our personal possessions and agendas for the good of others.
That's what Jesus looks like when we see him in the church. May God give us the grace to be who he paid for us to be with the blood of his son. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we want a deeper relationship with you. Cause our hearts to become impassionate and in love with Jesus, that we become a church for the sick and the hurting. Help us to love one another, that we can carry each other's burdens. Thank you for North Shore Church and all of our brothers and sisters. Forgive us for not always loving our church family the way that we should. Thank you for this example you showed us today from Acts 2 Church. Burden our hearts today to move closer to this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As our communion helpers come forward, I just want to uh, mention something that uh, Kim and I and the girls experienced on our vacation to Kentucky. Um, we visited the um, Ark Encounter. I don't know how many of you heard of this. I know like Andy and Justin and Bethany, a few people from church have, have gone to this. It is absolutely amazing. It's Noah's Ark. Um, it's a replica of the dimensions of it. Um, there's so many things I could say about it, but it would be Wednesday before I got done. So um, <clears throat> what I want to talk about is something that really struck me uh, as significant that I, I would like to read to you. Um, it was on right next to the door of the ark. And there's only one door in and out of the ark. That's all that God had had, uh, had him make. And so um, on, that, on this plaque that was, uh, you can see maybe if there's pictures on the left of that door, I don't know these people, by the way, they're just strangers. Um, it's, uh, uh, the plaque read, <clears throat> what will you do with Jesus Christ? Your answer to that question has eternal consequences. We are all guilty of sinning against our holy creator because he is holy, God must judge sin. If you take an honest look at your life, you will know that you have sinned and that you are in need of a savior. There was one door into the ark that saved Noah and his family from the flood. Similarly, there is only one door that can save us from eternal judgment. Jesus Christ is that door. He is the only way to be saved from sin. The Bible states that now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. If you have not already done so, will you turn from your sins and call on the risen Lord to save you. Enter the only door that leads to eternal life today. And that last statement really rings, a, rings true. Um, and, uh, because Do it today, if you haven't already. Um, John Hickson and I had a really nice conversation a few days ago. And one thing that stood out to me is, is something he said that would be a weakness in his life is that we always think we have tomorrow. And God has never said that and he's never promised us our next breath so folks if you haven't given yourself to christ and haven't done that in a way where you ask for forgiveness from your sins and live differently do it today and if you would like we have um we'll have elders up here after the end of the service that would love to talk to you about this if you're not sure what that means what does it mean to give your life to christ whatever the case may be please come up and we'd be happy to talk to you about that so as we move into uh, communion,